Really glad to see everyone this morning. Glad for the energy. Go ahead and take a seat. At this point, kids, go ahead and head off to Children's Church. I believe that Penny is waiting for you. Um, you will join us again. So, uh, parents, don't worry. Kids are coming back. Um, everyone else, uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Judges. And uh, we're going to continue in our series uh, called The Downward Spiral in the book of Judges. Uh, the past couple of weeks, we've kind of been in a mini-series in the book of Judges called Unlikely Heroes. And we've been seeing uh, God raise up uh, people who uh, have uh, questionable backgrounds, who uh, aren't exactly the type of people that you would uh, expect God to choose uh, to deliver his people. And this morning, we're going to see uh, part three of Unlikely Heroes. And uh, I've entitled, entitled the sermon, the lightning, bolt, the lightning Bolt and the Goat. Have you ever heard a sermon uh, called that, Lightning Bolt and the Goat? Hopefully not. Um, we'll, we'll see where, uh, where this is heading uh, shortly thereafter. Uh, so if you have your text, we're going to be in the book of Judges. Judges chapter 4 is exactly where we're going to be. I want to start with um, kind of a question. How many of you guys have heard of the myth that elephants are afraid of mice? Familiar with that? Okay, most people are. Uh, I've been familiar with that as well. How many of you think that that's actually true? Okay, several, but we have some doubters in here as well. We've got some skeptics, and that's good. It's okay to be skeptical. Um, I was, as I was thinking about the, the main characters in this story, we've got a couple main, couple main characters. And uh, I began to think about this idea of fear. Um, we're going to see really uh, a contrast in, in, in characters this morning. One of our main characters is going to be kind of a scaredy cat. He's going to be afraid, even though he really has no reason to be. And on the other hand, we have another main character who's going to be fearless even though she has every reason to fear. And so I, got, I started to think about this idea of being afraid, and the image popped into my mind of, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of the, how, how a mouse and an elephant is. Uh, an elephant really has no reason to be afraid of a mouse, um, but possibly they are. And mice, as far as I'm concerned, have every reason to be afraid of a huge elephant, um, but indeed they really aren't. And so I started thinking about this, and um, a, a show that I like to watch on occasion came to mind. Uh, it's Discovery Channel's Mythbusters. Anyone ever? seen Mythbusters. Yes, I'm not alone. I really enjoy Mythbusters. Um, so there's a short clip uh, that I want to show you, and they actually uh, did this myth. Are elephants afraid of mice? And the results that they're going to get may be surprising. So let's go ahead and watch this clip. But Adam and J.D. have just had the most unexpected result in Mythbusters history. It looks like it's true that elephants are scared of mice. That was amazing. The elephant totally avoided the mouse. He looked down, saw it, backed up, made a wide berth around this little guy. Working under the assumption that it must have been the movement of the dung that freaked the Ellie out, the boys reset for take two, dung movement only. But this time, the elephant was undeterred. This is getting ridiculous. He didn't seem to respond to the ball of dung at all, and I think my timing was exactly the same as it was with the mouse in there. <laughs> Works for me. Elephants are afraid of mice. <laughs> not only was I totally wrong in the first test about the elephant not reacting at all to the mouse, but after it happened, I was sure that it was the dung moving. I was absolutely positive that it was a dung moving. So we do another test, the dung moves, the elephant doesn't even notice. It has to have been the mouse. Working on the basis that science is repeatable, the boys are going to retry test one to see if they still get this incredible result. All right, let's see what happens. For the final time, the elephants approach. And lo and behold, in this David and Goliath battle, 
David wins again. He definitely seemed to take notice of the mouse. Like it was a significantly different thing than just the dog. I wasn't dreading this result. I'm always pleased to be completely wrong. I'm more astonished that I'm finishing the day calling something plausible that I knew wasn't plausible when I got up this morning. <laughs> he definitely didn't freak out, but he was very cautious. The mouse had his attention. It's that little grain of truth that we always look for in a myth, and there it was. There it was indeed. So with the mouse safe and well, despite Adam's best efforts, and the elephants ready to move on, it's time to wrap this one up. How are we going to call this one? <laughs> well, it wasn't a stampede. It wasn't like the cartoons of the elephant freaked out at the sight of the mouse. But the idea that the elephant was cautious around the mouse, I'd say we have to call that plausible. I'd agree. What do you think? Hello. Plausible. How many of that surprised? Any surprise? Anyone, anyone surprised? Yeah, I was too. Um, so here's the deal. The story this morning is called The Lightning Bolt and the Goat. And we have a couple main characters. Uh, this is our, um, our uh, third judge. And technically speaking, the third judge in our story is a female judge by the name of Deborah. So this is really the judgeship of Deborah. But what we see throughout the story is that Deborah is kind of um, not a big player. There are a couple main characters that are going to emerge in our story. Um, one uh, is, a, is a guy by the name of Barak. And Barak is a military leader of Israel. And he is very much like the elephant. Um, he has no reason to be afraid of the enemy that he is uh, approaching. Uh, he has a, a small reason, but not really. I mean, God has promised him victory. But what we see is that he is fearful when he shouldn't be fearful, very much like the elephants uh, here on, on the video. Uh, that being said, not only do we have the lightning bolt, Barak, but we also have uh, a female who is also kind of the other main character in our story, and her name is J.L., uh, which means mountain goat. So the lightning bolt and the mountain goat. And J.L., the mountain goat, is very much like the mouse. Uh, she is fearless when she faces the adversity that she's going to face, even though she really has every reason to be afraid. She doesn't have any divine uh, promise from God that what she's going to undertake is going to be victorious. And so we really have a story of a mouse and an elephant here, the story of the lightning bolt and the goat. So uh, just by way of reminder, there are six major judges in the story. Uh, we've seen the first two, Othniel and Ehud. If you remember, the first two are good. Othniel and Ehud are kind of moral guys. They uh, are faithful. They're obedient to God. They are risk takers. Um, starting this morning, we're going to get into the, the third and the fourth judge, uh, Barak and Gideon. And we're, what we're going to kind of begin to see is a decline in the character of the judges. As Israel uh, goes further and further into apostasy, we're going to see that reflected even in the judges. And the, the, the third and fourth judges, Barak and Gideon, really, um, we see their slide in, in their character uh, in the fact that they are less and less um, uh, Faithful. They, they don't really believe in God. Their, their faith in God, their trust in God is really going to decline. And so this is where we're going to be going. What I hope that we can do this morning is simply this. I hope we can read through the story. It's fairly lengthy. So we're going to read through the story, hear the story um, of the lightning bolt and the goat. And after that, I just want to make four points, four principles, if you will, that we can see from this story. There are a lot, there's a ton of good stuff in this story, so it's really hard for me to choose. But I, I chose kind of four principles that we can see, uh, hopefully four principles 
principles that we can apply to our life. So that's, that's my goal. So let's go ahead and do that. If you have your Bibles, uh, get them out. If not, you can read with me on the screen. Um, we're just going to read through the account together, and uh, then we'll jump into the text. Um, starting in verse 1, Judges 4. Here we go. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. So here we go. The first enemy, if you will, King Jabin. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in, here we go, Herosheth Hagoyan. Better than System Park, right? No, not really. That's pretty hard to say. So we have the introduction of the two main characters. We have an evil king, and then we have his commander. Moving on. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. For he, that is the chief, had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Moving on. Now Deborah, a prophetess, was the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. Introduce kind of the good heroine, if you will, Deborah. She, plays, she has a real small, small role to play. Verse 5. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. Moving on. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking uh, 10,000 men uh, from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops. And I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. So the tension is building. We have two heroes. One is scared. He refuses to go. Uh, without her, she says, go ahead. But a woman is going to get the glory. So at this point, we're all anticipating who that woman is. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to, to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali, tribes of Israel, to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels. So they followed him. And Deborah went up with him. So they're going to battle. At this point, we kind of have the story set. We have the main players. We've got the king, evil king. We've got his commander. We've got God's prophetess. And we've got a scared general. The scared general is following, uh, is taking his troops. And they're going out to battle, just like the Lord said. But he's scared. So he's taking the female prophet with him. This is kind of a, an insertion here. This is going to be something that we'll develop later. Verse 11, scene 2, if you will. Now Heber, introduction of a new character, now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, that's a good name, the father-in-law of Moses, continuing on, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Herosheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, 
For this is the day which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. And so the battle is about to begin. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all of his chariots and all of his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Herosheth Hagoyim. And all of the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. Okay, I want to pause here just to catch everyone up. So there's been the battle. God has given the victory. Evil king uh, Jabin has been defeated. His general Cicero is on the run. He's running. And lo and behold, he goes to the house of this tent, if you will, of this guy by the name of Heber. Now, what we've learned earlier is that this Heber guy is a Kenite. He is kind of a part of Israel, um, kind of not technically, uh, but he is a part of Israel. He should be faithful to Israel. And what we see here is that this guy by the name of Heber has been unfaithful to Israel. He's playing both sides, if you will. He has a peace treaty with the evil king, evil king Jabin. And so what we see is this commander, he is fleeing, he's looking for safe haven, and lo and behold, he goes to this tent. And now we're introduced to this guy's wife, and this guy's wife is Jael. Everyone with me? Kind of? Okay, here we go. Verse 18. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. Verse 19. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened up a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him up. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here, say no. You know, anyone like Barak. Verse 21, but Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer into her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. That's probably got to be a big understatement, right? Verse 22. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So, and this is kind of wrapping up the story here, verse 23 and 24. So on that day, God subdued Jabin the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. Verse 24. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. And that is the story of the lightning bolt and the goat. Pretty interesting one, huh? Just as graphic and gory as last week's, if you remember. So, where do we go from here? What I want us to see, there are a lot of, lot of things that could be commented here. Four principles I want us to see. So let's go ahead and jump into it. You'll see the principles on the screen. I'll, I'll kind of reread some of the text. So if you have your Bible open, that's a good thing. 
first principle that we see is, is from verse 6 and 7. And that's simply this, that God's demands don't always make sense to us. What God asks of us, what he requires of us, doesn't always quite make sense to us. And I get this from verses 6 and 7. So I'd like to reread verses 6 and 7 for you. It says this. Uh, this is when uh, she is commanding Barak to fight against this uh, evil king. She says this. Deborah says this. Go, gather your men. Where? At Mount Tabor. This is a uh, significant detail. Go and gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 men from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. So go, gather up your armies, take this many men, and go up to this mountain. Verse 7. And God says, I will draw out Sisera. Interesting Interesting language, right? God's saying, I'm going to draw the enemy to you. You don't even have to call uh, you and know, say, come out and fight. I'm going to draw the enemy to you. And I will draw out Sisera, the general, of, uh, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you, and this is another significant detail, by the river Kishon, by the river Kishon, with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. And so here's kind of what is going on. God is saying, I'm going to pick a fight for you, uh, Barak. And so what I want you to do is get your men, go up to this mountain, Mount Tabor, and just wait. The enemy is going to come, and I'm going to draw him to you, along with his men and his superior chariots. And they're going to be waiting below you in the valley near the river Kishon. It was a river valley that was often dry during this season. And so what we have here, I think, is God giving what must have seemed to Barak as a suicide mission. And I'll help you see this in a second. This was a suicide mission. This was God calling Barak to do something that had to go against every military instinct that he had. He must have scratched his head and said, what? <laughs> you want me to do what? Let me tell you why. First of all, he says, go up, go up to Mount Tabor. Okay, uh, this is an interesting thing. A couple pictures. This is Mount Tabor in Israel. Okay, there we go. It's kind of like a hill. You know, it's not really like the Rockies or anything. But this is the mountain that God calls uh, for his uh, armies to go up. Here's another just kind of an aerial view, just to kind of give you a glimpse of what God was calling uh, this guy to do. So he says, Barak, take your men, go up there on this high ground and wait. Now you notice kind of all around the area of Mount Tabor, is it, is it flat or is it hilly? All around, kind of after, it's you know, for, for a good ways, it's pretty flat, right? I mean, you see some hills in the distance, but kind of immediately surrounding this, it's a pretty flat area. And the reason why this is significant is because, remember, what kind of weaponry did this um, general have? Anybody remember? 900 what? Chariots, because what were chariots used for? Chariots were used primarily for chasing the enemy down when they were fleeing. Obviously, you could chase many, many people down on chariots when they were fleeing. And so... They like to operate in the flat ground. You can imagine if you're taking a, a chariot and it's real bumpy and it's real hilly, that's going to be kind of a rough ride, right? That's not an ideal weapon for hill country. But for flat area, like it is surrounding this mountain, it's perfect. I mean, it's, it's like, it's like playtime for this guy. He's like, I would love to meet this army here. And not only that, where did God tell the army to go? Up on the mountain. I don't know. I mean, I'm no, I'm no military guy, but, you know, it seems reasonable to me um, and other people that I've read that, uh, you know, if you have the high ground in this situation, it's not going to be real good. Because if you lose and your men begin to flee, 
man, it's like, you're like sitting ducks. You know, he's like, okay, go sit up on this mountain, and I'm going to bring this guy with superior technology, and um, just wait. Just sit and wait. And then attack when I tell you to. <laughs> and Barack must have be, th- be thinking, are you, are you kidding? This is really what you want me to do. This is how you're going to give uh, Sisera into my hands. Every indication, every indication would, give, would make you think that this is a suicide mission. I mean, it's a suicide mission. God is asking him to do something that just didn't really make much sense. Didn't make much sense. It was a suicide mission. There's a quick story I want to share with you from uh, our daily bread. There's a, um, a man by the name of Archibald Rutledge. I don't know if you are familiar with him. I wasn't, so I Googled him. He's essentially a kind of an outdoors writer uh, about 50 years ago, Archibald Rutledge. And he tells this story, so I, I want to go ahead and read it to you. I think, I think Barack would, would, uh, would sympathize with this story. Archibald Rutledge wrote one day that he met a man whose dog had just been killed in a forest fire. Heartbroken, the man explained to Rutledge how it happened. Because he worked outdoors, he often took his dog with him. So that morning, he took the animal into a clearing, and he gave the dog a command to watch his lunch bucket while he went into the forest. His faithful friend, the dog, understood what he asked uh, him to do, and that's exactly what he did. Unfortunately, a fire was started in the woods, and soon the blaze spread immediately or eventually to the spot where the dog had been, had been left. But the dog didn't move. He stayed right where he was in perfect obedience to his master's word. With tearful eyes, the dog's owner said, I always had to be careful what I told him to do because I knew that he would do it. Um, the dog, uh, to the dog, it was kind of a suicide mission. He, his owner was asking him to do something that you know, led to his death. This, Barack must have been, felt like that dog. He must have felt, God, what are you asking me to do? So we see our first principle. God often demands things from us, asks us to do things that in our human reason just don't make sense. But what we're going to see as we get a little bit further along into the story is that this, these, these details, drawing Sisera out by the river Kishon, remember that detail, up in the high, uh, up in the mountains. This is exactly the means by which God is going to deliver his people. And so while it looked like to Barak that God was setting him up for defeat, he was in actuality setting him up for victory. And so for us, God, God doesn't always make sense to us, his demands. So what about you? Uh, what kind of demands, what kind of questions, what kind of things is God demanding or asking of you that to you, much like Barak, just doesn't make sense? You kind of scratch your head and you say, what? What is it that you're asking me to do? And the secondary question is, how, how through obedience in that might God actually be saving you? How might God actually be delivering you from something bad through your obedience? Um, a, few, a few things that might be. Uh, maybe God is just simply calling you to endure. Uh, as I think through the New Testament in particular, uh, when the New Testament authors speak about trials, when they speak about hardships, when they, think, when they speak about difficult times, this word, this endurance, this perseverance, pops up all the time. They say, is life tough? Endure. Persevere. God demands that we persevere in our faith. When times are hard, we run to him as opposed to away from him. And by doing so, what God is actually doing is he's saving us. He's saving us from heartache. He's saving us from anxiety. He's saving us from losing our faith. He's saving us from losing really our only true source of comfort and peace. He's saying, don't run from me. Persevere. 
Maybe God's asking you to do, um, you know, to seek reconciliation with a person. And it doesn't quite make sense to you. They don't deserve it. You've had a scuffle. They're in the wrong. Maybe you are too, a little bit. And God says, you know what? You need to reconcile with that person. It doesn't matter if you're right. It doesn't matter if you're wrong. You need to reconcile with your brother in Christ. And you're like, uh, that doesn't make sense. But in, by asking you to do so, what he's really doing is he's saving you from a strained relationship. He's, he's saving you from resentment towards that person. Thirdly, maybe God is asking you, you know what? Um, things aren't going very well in your marriage. It's, it's been tough. It's been hard. But maybe God is asking you to do something that just doesn't make any sense to you. Just to stick it out. Just to stick it out for a little bit longer. And maybe by doing so, he wants to save you from heartache, from bitterness, from pain, from regret. I don't know, I don't know what it is for you. But oftentimes, God asks us to do things that just don't make sense. But he does so. He always does so. Because he wants to deliver us. So we've seen the first principle. God demands things oftentimes that just don't make sense. We see from verse 8 kind of the follow-up principle, which is our second principle. And that is lack of faith often leads to conditional obedience. So we see that uh, Barak is asked to do this. Deborah asks this thing that must have meant, it just didn't make any sense. It just didn't make any sense. And this is how Barak responds in verse 8. He says this. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, Notice the first word, if. If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. As I said, there are good reasons that Barak was hesitant. I mean, I can understand from a human perspective why you wouldn't want to go into this kind of battle. But all that to say, God had said, I'm going to give you victory. If you just trust me, if you just obey me, I'm going to give you victory. But what we see here is conditional obedience. We see conditional obedience. He says, Okay, God, I will do what you're asking if, 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 if you come with me, if, if, if you come with me, Deborah, then I will do it. There's an, an anonymous author who says this, where God places a period, let no man put a question mark. And I think that's exactly what, what Barak is doing. He's putting a question mark where there should be a period. So what about us? You know what? As I think about my life, Man, I, I do this a lot, more than I should. I think we all do. I think we all, to some degree, have conditional obedience to God. And so we say, you know what? I'll be obedient to you, God. I'll pursue you. I'll go to church faithfully, and I'll be a part of the body if the business goes well. And if I have time. And if my marriage gets better. Or if my kids are a success. Then I'll be involved in church. Or we say, you know what? God, I will, I will obey you. I'll, I'll try to seek to do exactly what you say, but only, only if it makes my life better. I mean, only if my standard of living goes up, and only if my relationships get better, and only if my life gets easier, but not if it gets harder. I'm not going to obey you, God, if that means that, well, that means I really have to be generous with my time and my money, <clears throat> or if I have to be accountable to someone, like a, like a, a pastor or a small group uh, leader, I have to be accountable here, or I have to place myself under authority, well... Maybe not then. We say, sure, God, I'll share my faith. I'll share my faith if, if there's no contention, you know, because I really don't want contention in my family over this right now. Sure, I'll share my faith, God, but only if it doesn't push me out of my comfort zone, only if it happens naturally. Then I'll share my faith, God. Or, you know, if it's not going to cause strain in my friendship, because, because, you know, she's my friend or he's my buddy, and if I share my faith... 
I don't know. I don't know how they're going to react. Sure, I'll share my faith. If. Husbands, we say, sure, I'll love my wife. I'll love my wife like, the, like Christ loves the church. If she deserves it. I'll love my wife. I'll sacrifice for her. If she typically has a good mood. If she never complains or makes unreasonable demands on me or never criticizes me, sure, I'll love her. If. Wives, we say, sure, I'll respect my husband. Husband. Hopefully you don't have plural. <laughs> oh, a slip of the tongue. I'm not Mormon, really. <laughs> husband. Sure, I'll respect my husband. Singular. If he's worthy. If he treats me like he should. If he never messes up. If he meets my expectations. Sure. And we, just like Barack, have conditional obedience. Yes, God. If. We've seen a couple principles. The third principle is found in verse 17. We're kind of skipping ahead here. And these first two principles are really found from the story of Barak. The third principle is found from the story of Jael. Jael, the mountain goat. What a, an amazing and interesting character she is. Third principle that we see is found in verse 17. It's simply this. You have to choose. You just have to choose. And what I mean by that is we see this from the story of Jael. I want to read verse 17 to you and then talk a little bit about it. But Sisera fled away on foot, and so the battle is over. Evil commander is running away. He's looking for refuge, and where does he go? He goes to the tent of Jael, whose wife, excuse me, whose husband is friendly with the bad guys. He's friends with this king. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For, and this is key. For there was peace. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And so here's, here's kind of what is going on. There's a guy by the name of Heber and there is his wife by the name of Jael. It's very clear to us where Heber's allegiance lie. He is friends with the enemy. He is a part of Israel, but he's riding the fence. He's benefiting most likely financial, financially from the Canaanites, who are then ruling over this area. He's friends. He's made a peace treaty with him. Uh, interestingly enough, Heber, uh, Jael's wife, means ally, because he's an ally of the enemy. The Kenite literally means smith, as in most likely blacksmith. And so this is a little bit conjecture, but it's very, very likely that this guy, Jael's husband, Heber, is not only riding the fence, but he's a blacksmith. Now remember what kind of chariots they had. What were they? Iron. Hmm. Could, could Heber be supplying the enemy with iron for their chariots to suppress his own people? It's very likely. Very likely. It's very clear where his allegiance lie. He is in favor of the Canaanites, in, i.e. their idolatrous idol gods. But what we don't see very clearly until the very end of the story is Jael. I mean, what about Jael? Her husband is riding the fence and has provided a good you know, life for them. But where does her allegiance lie? Again, maybe a bit conjecture, but my guess here is that she's kind of somewhere in between. You know, her, her husband has a good job, has provided for her. They're certainly benefiting from being friends with the enemies. But maybe she has a divided heart. She's not real sure. Uh, you know, she uh, grew up an Israelite and worshiping Yahweh. But, you know, there are these idols and her husband worships these idols. And where is she? Where is she? Where does her allegiance lie? And the point that I want to get here is that when Sisera, when Sisera came to her doorstep or to her tent step, if you will, in that moment, it was a crisis of faith. 
She had to decide in that moment, who is she for? What God is she going to serve? Is she going to serve the God of the Israelites? Or is she going to serve the pagan idols of the Canaanites? Who is she going to serve? She had to choose. There was a crisis of faith. It, was un- it must have been unexpected. I mean, can you just imagine she's doing whatever she does? And then, lo and behold, unexpected- unexpectedly, God brings this fleeing Canaanite general to her doorstep. And boom, she has to decide. Whose side is she on? She has to decide. We see from the story that she decides to follow God. She decides to follow Yahweh. And uh, interestingly enough, the woman whose name is Mountain Goat seduced, if you will, her, her victim by milk. Most likely goat milk in that culture. Uh, and so she chooses rightly. And so the, the point that I want to get at is sometimes things happen like this in our life. Sometimes, much like J.L., Something or someone happens in our life, and it's, it's a crisis of faith. We have to choose who it is we're going to serve. I think oftentimes we've all been through phases like this to where we serve God, and we want to serve God, but you know, we kind of serve the world too. We, we serve its values. We kind of get comfortable, and we just kind of ride the fence, you know? And something happens. Something happens, and it causes us to have to choose. It's a crisis of faith moment. For J.L., it was a fleeing Sisera. So what is it for you? Maybe it has happened in the past. Maybe it is happening right now. Maybe it will happen in the future. But something's going to happen. God's going to bring something into our life. And it's going to be a crisis of faith moment. We're going to have to say, okay, do I really believe God? Do I really serve him? Do I really love him? Do I really value him? Or do I not? Maybe it's, a, it's an illness in the family. Maybe it's an unexpected death. And you have to, in that moment, choose between serving God and loving God and the idol that family can be. What are you, you going to choose? Sometimes it may be a job that's lost or a cut in pay or some kind of financial crisis. And in that moment, it's a, it's a Sisera for you. You have to choose. Are you going to serve God or the idol of security? Which is it? Maybe it's a, a marriage trouble, uh, your, your marriage is falling apart. Maybe a girlfriend or a boyfriend dumps you, um, things aren't going well, and you have to choose between, the, between God and the idol of a relationship. You have to choose. These things happen in our life. And so, what's the Sisera in your life? What is it in your life? I want to show a quick video here and hopefully not run us over too much. Um, It's a video of a pastor, a young pastor by the name of Matt Chandler. I don't know if you know Matt Chandler. You probably don't. He is a pastor in Dallas um, of uh, several big churches. Kind of was, knew about him. He's kind of an up-and-coming star in the evangelical world, doing all sorts of good stuff, an incredibly gifted teacher. Man, Google him, podcast him. He's fantastic. To make a long story short, uh, I believe it was on Thanksgiving Day, he um, found out that he had a tumor in his brain, and it was a cancerous tumor in his brain. They had to do surgery immediately. He's going to talk a little bit about that. But the point that I really want us to see is that for him, this was a fleeing Sisera. For him, this was a crisis of faith moment. And he had already talked about serving God and the good and the bad, but it came to it in his life to where he had to choose. It was real. And so I want you to see just, oh, how he chose God. Let's just watch this. Hi, I'm Matt Chandler. I'm the lead pastor, teaching pastor here at the Village Church. 
Um, if you haven't heard, it's been uh, quite the weekend, uh, really quite the week for us. Uh, on Thanksgiving morning, uh, I had a seizure and woke up in the hospital. Uh, they did some scans and they found a, a tumor on my right frontal lobe. Um, it's about uh, two inches um, by one inch, so two inches in diameter, about one inch deep. Um, and on Friday, really by the time you watch this, uh, they're going to go in and, and cut it out. And so I, I wanted to say just a couple of things to you uh, very quickly. Um, knowing that this is the first weekend in FMX, we're live streaming, like all these good things are happening and I'm having to miss out on that. Uh, just trust the Lord with that. Um, but in, in the end, a couple of things. One, I, I just can't thank you enough. Um, and really the places where our hearts have been real tender is um, just the outpouring of love and encouragement and support and prayers um, from really not just the village but all over the world. And um, that's been such a humbling, humbling thing. Uh, to me and my family. Um, and so I wanted to thank you for that. And then um, the second thing, I just wanted to say this um, so you could hear me say this. Um, I've been, in my travels this fall, I've been preaching kind of the same message out of Hebrews 11. And in Hebrews 11, um, he says that, that some shut the mouths of lions and, and some, um, they put foreign armies to flight. And some, you know, it kind of goes through this, all these good things that happen to these men of God. And then right in the middle of, I believe, um, I believe it's verse 30. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, but it's somewhere right in there. All of a sudden it just turns. I think it's 32. It just turns. And all of a sudden it says, and some were tortured. And, and some um, were sawn in two. And some were destitute. And some were. And, and then he said, but both, both walked in faith. And, and so this, I'm 35 years old. I'm at this point in my life, all he's ever given me um, was, I mean, we just, we've shut the mouths of lions and we've put foreign armies to flight and we fought against injustice and there have been nothing but good um, that has come. And so I've always felt like, um, I've always felt when, when I taught that message, there was this hitch in me that was going, when I say, but some don't get that, I, I thought that there would be people in the crowd that would say, um, well, well, of course you're going to say that. Of course you're going to point that out because God's done nothing but be good to you. He's done nothing but be gracious to you. He's done nothing but let you have victory after victory after victory. Um, and so when this all came out and then when we found out from the surgeon that there, we were expecting to get multiple options, here are your options, and we didn't. We got There's one option we need to get in there now. Um, I, there's this part of me that's so grateful that the Lord counted me worthy for this. And there's this part of me that goes, okay, because now in an area where it's not a big win, I get to show that he's enough. And I get to praise him and exalt him and, and make much of him in this. Because I've got to make much of him in this. Now he, he's counting me worthy to, to point to him in this. Um, and so know that, man, we... We've cried our tears at my house, and, man, I've held my children, and I've kissed them, and I've kissed my wife. And what I, what I would love is to be a 70-year-old man drinking coffee. I would love to walk my daughter down the aisle. I would love to see um, my boy turn into the athlete I never was. I mean, I would love to, I would love to do all of that. Um, but none of those things is better than him. None of those things. And I'm saying that now. I'm saying that right now, not as the guy who has everything and has nothing in front of him that he could lose. But I'm telling you that now as a guy who could lose everything in, in an instant. Um, and so, 
man, I love you. I love this place. It's been the great joy of my life to yell at you for seven years. Um, my plan is to come back um, more aggressive. That's my plan. And so we'll see what the Lord has for me. Um, I, am, I am not afraid. Uh, and so for those of you who kind of you just keep living in fear, um, and, and you would try to use this as an excuse to continue in that fear, don't you dare use me as an excuse to continue in your lies. Um, my hope would be that you would see that he is good in all things and that he would never send to any of us things he does not provide strength for. I love you more than you know. I can't wait to, can't wait to be back. can't wait to be back. I love you. I don't know about you, but uh, that's what it looks like to be a JL. That's what it looks like to respond rightly in a crisis of faith. That's what it looks like. I pray that for myself and for, for all of us who are going through crisis of faith moments like JL is. I'm going to do this. I'm going to ask our team to come up and to lead us in, in time of response. And so guys, come on up. Uh, help us to sing. We're going to pray. We're going to let the kids come back in, and they're going to join us in worship. Uh, but just have a, a quick moment of silence. We're going to pray. I encourage you. I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know what God, God is putting on your heart. I don't know if God's asking you to do things that just don't make sense, like you did Barack. I don't know if you are... Uh, like Barack, uh, in the conditional obedience, and you're like, man, I've got conditions in my heart. And maybe you're like JL, and, and there's a crisis of moment faith that you're a crisis of faith moment that you're facing right now, and you want to be like JL and respond rightly. Whatever it is, I encourage you just to spend a brief moment in prayer. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to respond in, in song. Father, I ask now that you would move in our midst, that you would help us to become worshipers of you. Father, that you would help us not to respond in conditional obedience, but we would go. Whatever it is that you say to us, that we would do. And Father, whatever, um, whatever it is that you're bringing in our life that's testing our faith, Father, I pray that we would be like JL, that we would choose you, Father, that we would love you, and that we would honor you in all things. Father, now I pray that you would work in our hearts, that our, our, our lips would respond to you in worship, because you're good, and you're holy, and you're just, and you're loving. So we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Kids, come on in. I'd invite you to stand and sing. Would you pray with me? Father, we uh, confess with our mouth that you are mighty to save. God, you have uh, sent your son, Jesus Christ, God, to save us from the penalty of our sin. God, to die a bloody and gruesome death, uh, the death that we deserved. God, to take uh, the punishment of your holy wrath, which we deserve. Father, he indeed rose from the dead. God, he was resurrected to new life so that if we place our face in him, we too will be resurrected, made new people. You will help us to overcome. God, you're mighty to save, not only from uh, the penalty of our sin, but Father, you are mighty mighty to save us uh, from God's sin in our life, from the power of sin. God, uh, for all eternity, you will save us. You indeed are a mighty Savior. And Father, you are mighty to save us now uh, from the things that we're going through, from our trials, uh, and Father, from our sinful responses to our trials. Father, I ask that you would be mighty to save in all of our life. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.